Hello, 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 and welcome to the slightly new format of the Future of Advertising podcast. You may be glad to hear that it now comes with less than ever and fits comfortably within an hour, but uh, is still jam-packed with interesting opinions, advice, and blatherings. Most importantly, it's now much easier for me to create. It's all about me, you see. So I should be able to bring these out a bit more regularly because I'm, I'm backlogged now with some <laughs> interesting interviews. Uh, yes, I can see you're excited. I can, I can see you high-fiving a stranger right now. Brilliant. Before I tell you what's in the podcast, I just want to mention a little experiment I brought out this week. It's an interactive film I did on YouTube with the help of my daughter. There'll be a link on the screen right now if you're listening on an Apple device. However, and rather ironically, it sadly doesn't work on iPads or iPods, so you're probably best off emailing it to yourself. Oh, how ironic. So, what in the blithering heck is it, I hear you ask? Well, it's a digital dare that's uh, all about trying to make you question your digital connections and uh, have a look at your involvement with social media. Um, It's done using a kid's foldy paper thing that my daughter took a bit of a craze for, and it's already had a fair amount of hits thanks to Rob Emanuel and his beta newsletter. So, go and have a go, and report back, and uh, there's some more YouTube experiments in the pipeline. So don't be a stranger. It's not all about podcasts, you know. Right, anyway, on to this episode and what we've got in store. Uh, We've just got two sections now in the podcast, as well as my own jibber-jabber. In this episode, we've got the super-talented Ed Robinson from The Viral Factory, who's going to be sharing his top five tips on how to create content that spreads. It's well worth listening to, and you should probably take notes. But that's coming after our first section. A few weeks ago, I stayed up until one in the morning so that I could interview Stanley Johnson, who's the creative director of Wonderman in Melbourne. Stan and I know each other from being advertising bloggers. He's the man behind the brilliant Brand DNA blog and columnist for Australia's marketing magazine. I wanted to catch up with him to find out if Australia was suffering from different issues to the rest of the advertising world. So, without any more dilly-dallying, here is Stanley Johnson. It's midnight here in the UK. I'm on Skype, and I'm talking to Stanley Johnson, who's the creative director of Wonderman in Melbourne. Hello, Stan. Uh, good. I was going to say good morning. Good morning and good evening, Dave. How are you? <laughs> Very well. C- could you give us a, a, a quick two-minute history of your career? Okay. Um, I shall endeavour to keep it to two minutes, because that's what you've asked for, but I could ramble for days. But essentially, um, I kind of built uh, my career, starting in the early 90s, I took up an offer at uh, JWT to join what was at the time their direct marketing group but became a kind of pioneering digital group. We were some of the first people to kind of uh, hop onto what was then known as the information superhighway um, where we, you know, d- developed a lot of interesting digital ideas before, uh, before well, at least in Australia, before they were talked about clients really didn't kind of get those ideas they weren't keen to put money on them but at the same time we still kind of carried on doing our direct marketing work which was infused with I think a sense of thinking that hadn't been around at the time uh, in the direct marketing area Uh, so we started to pick up quite a few awards and built reputations for ourselves 
Uh, as the uh, 90s drew to a close, my wife and I decided to um, head over to London for a few years and I uh, worked at uh, Barraclough Hall, which then became Proximity, spent a brief amount of time with an agency called Circle before becoming the European Creative Director of the integrated part of FCB, which was known as uh, FCBI. Uh, came back to Melbourne in the uh, about 2002-2003 where I helped start an agency called Faith. Uh, turned out the partners in the agency didn't have as much faith in me as I did in them, so I left that. And I've been the crowd director of Wonderman here for the last uh, nearly four years now. So you're a very integrated creative. Have you seen an attitude changing within the industry towards digital and all things pixels? It's a very interesting question, you know, because I kind of consider myself, you know, like, I, of course, I would consider myself a pioneer, but we were very much pioneers back then. The guy who was our creative director had come down from uh, Hong Kong, uh, but had originally begun his career in Silicon Valley. Uh, so he was a very forward thinker. And uh, he sold me on uh, the following idea, and this was in 1993. Uh, I, I, I turned down the job that he offered me because I didn't kind of uh, want to go into the direct marketing area. But he said to me, look, here's, he, he said, you're looking at the agency today. I need you to look forward 10 years from now. He said, this, uh, this office is 150 people and we're about five of them here in the corner. He said, 10 years from now, we will be the bulk of this agency and there'll be a little specialised group in the middle that do advertising. Um, and I swallowed that hook, line and sinker. Uh, his vision is starting to come true. It's taken a long time. There are still a lot of people who, who haven't bought into that way of thinking, but I believe it's happening over time. And, and you've worked both in the UK and in Australia. And what are the big differences you see between the, the two industries and in the countries? I think for me, really, um, I remember when I went uh, to London with, with my, uh, you know, with my folio under my, my arm because, you know, I was a creative director at J. Walter Thompson. I walked away from that and went to London with, armed with nothing but a folio and appointments with three headhunters, uh, which, when I look back on it now, was uh, a suicidal, insane thing to do because I had two young children as well. Um, but in actual fact, getting a job in, in, in London was a piece of cake. Uh, coming back to Melbourne was was slightly more difficult. But what was the the you know what was the thing I noticed the most when I went to London was that it had the same problems and the same issues that we face here, uh, just on a much bigger scale. Mm. And and what are those issues? Um, there are issues within uh, agencies with regards to integration and ideas, uh, issues related to the clients and the way that they see what we do and, and, and what other uh, members of our uh, advertising family do. And are these still the issues that you think are the main things the industry needs to address just now? Um, of course, it's only my humble opinion, but I do believe that's the case. You know, uh, there are still, um, from my experience, guys who think that um, the answer to a brief is an ad. Um, and I've always thought the answer to a brief should be essentially something interesting, something that people are, you know, um, are, are going to take to. Um, and whilst it kind of seems an odd thing to say in many of the presentations that I'm involved, I always kind of uh, 
say up front before I show the work that this work has not been created for the people that I'm showing it to, it's not been created for the brand, that it's been created for the consumer, with the consumer in mind. Um, I always like to put that caveat on the work. Um, people always kind of buy into it, but I do still get the occasional eye roll when I kind of bring that one out. And do you see a, a good movement within digital agencies in Australia at the moment? There are, here in Australia, there's, there's, there's kind of two streams, and I think this probably applies everywhere, but I'll, I'll just talk about my local market. There are a handful of agencies that, you know, that are little kind of creative hotshops that do lots of cool stuff. Um, and then there are the bigger kind of, you know, what I guess you'd call pure play digital agencies, you know, who are doing websites and stuff like that. Um, I think that applies everywhere, really. What I really want to see is where are the agencies that are doing the cool stuff but doing it within a, you know, kind of more, I suppose, traditional agency environment. People still seem to see this horrible line between traditional and digital. Um, it's, it's, it's something which I don't think either of us sort of see in the work that we do. Do, do you think that the creative of the future um, needs different skills to the traditional creatives of today? I think that a lot of people in our industry seem to see youth as the future. Um, I think that we need to kind of look uh, beyond that again. And so if you look at a 22, 23-year-old person who comes into the advertising industry to become a copywriter, say, uh, that person, even though they are you know, very uh, clued up on a computer and they probably use their mobile phone all the time, uh, if I compare that generation of, of kids to, say, the kids I have at home, like my 14-year-old son, for instance, I think he and his generation are the future of this industry. They're the people that will bring the revolution that's been coming for a long time but has never actually happened. And do you think it's more exciting to be in the industry now or to be starting in the industry now or just more difficult? Um, it, it's, it's a good question because I think it's never been... An easy. Um, um, I, I can't talk for the uh, suit side of the business, but from the creative department, it's never been an easy industry to get into. It's always been an area, you know, where ideas were your calling card. Um, you know, it's the sort of job where five years at Harvard and an MBA won't make you any better at having an idea. So ideas and fresh thinking were what it was always about. But I think that the young kids. So if, as I said, if I take my son as an example. Now, he's a guy who, if I asked him what's his favourite TV channel, he'd say YouTube uh, because he doesn't, he doesn't watch television, but he watches a lot of television programmes, but he doesn't turn on the TV at all. Um, so his whole life is lived through a computer now, you know, where he's watching TV shows, but he's chatting with people and he's got an eye on a few other windows popping up at the same time. This, 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 this ability to multitask... Uh, is 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 something that I really can't get my head around. What stuff is it that's exciting you at the moment? Um, I like the fact that every day I come to work, there's the opportunity to do something that hasn't been done before. Um, I spend a little bit of time at um, RMIT, which is a university here in Melbourne, where I took uh, classes as part of their advertising uh, degree. Um, and I used to instill in the uh, in, in in the students there 
one particular thought, which was that don't think of yourself as wanting to be a creative. Don't think of yourself as wanting to be an art director or a copywriter. Think of yourself as having a career where you get to solve problems using your creativity. Uh, and that's the sort of thought that drives me every day. And what agencies do you think at the moment are getting closest to that kind of future? Um, I think from the Australian... Uh, look, I, I think... Um, I'm going to uh, ramble now, so hopefully you can, you can edit out this uh, little bit of a rambling bullshit because I think everybody, no matter which country you're in, they always look to somewhere else. So, for instance, I found when I worked in London, people were always talking about things that they did in New York. Uh, just as when I worked here in Melbourne, we always talked about stuff that they did in London. Uh, but my creative director there said to me uh, after I kind of um, finished up, he, he, he asked me when I had the job interview why I'd come to London. And I said, because to me it was kind of, it was the epicentre, it was where ideas happened and I wanted to be there. So fast forward a couple of months later and we went out for a beer and, you know, get the kind of catch up and a chat and he said I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you all those months ago and see if I get the same answer you know do you think that London was what you were expecting and I said uh, no I think I, I mentioned this before it's just the same stuff but on a much bigger scale and he said yeah you're right he said you don't need to come to London to prove yourself you know you were doing great work where you were uh, and I think now that the internet has enabled us to kind of see that more and more, it used to be that you only saw, you know, like the great work being done in the UK, for instance, when the DNAD annual came out. These days, I can open my computer and, and people share their work all the time. So I think that there's a worldwide uh, access to everybody else's ideas and thinking, which hopefully makes all of our ideas grow and get a little better. Uh, that's me going off track for a while to come back to the original question, which I shall apply to the Australian market. I think there are a handful of agencies here who have been able to go beyond what they were doing when they very first started, you know, which was, I guess, advertising. And they've now developed the sort of thinking that runs completely through the line, so which has seen... Uh, the rise of the two to three minute uh, video entry for award shows, um, you know, where you've got every single campaign has a, a tele ad, it's got some stuff that we do online, it's got a little bit of an ambient stunt and the, the, the thinking goes through the line. But I think for me, a lot of it is still just advertising, in a, but, but in a slightly different form. Whereas I'm, I'm more interested in stuff that really hasn't been done before. And I don't even know if I'm the person to have those ideas, but I'd like to be able to find people who can help us have them here. Now, there seems to be a couple of ways that agencies are going when it comes to including digital into what they do. Uh, one is that the, people are, the larger agencies are trying to insource all of the skills, and there's smaller agencies who are trying to outsource all of the skills. Um, do you think that there's a, a better one of those is better than the other? Um, I think it's very difficult to have everybody uh, on staff for a particular idea. You know, I used to, uh, well, I used to say, I, I still believe that what makes a good art director is a good Rolodex. You know, you need to be able to put a posse together to make your idea happen. So I guess in the olden days, you know, you, you let's say you had an idea for a TV ad or for a print ad, 
your art director would uh, think about the sort of directors and the style that he wanted and he'd, and he'd chat with a few directors and get a few reels in or if he wanted a photographer. Uh, if you needed some interesting stuff done with type, maybe you'd bring in typographer. So you'd always bring outside people in to help realise your vision. Um, I think the same thing happens a lot with the digital work where, you know, like you just can't justify in a big agency, you know, where you'd be holding to a holding company, uh, you just can't justify having a lot of those people on staff. But what you can do is, if you've got that idea, bring them in. Uh, the downside of that is that I'd really like to have, you know, people like that around all the time to kind of throw briefs to so they can invent stuff that we haven't seen before. But the nature of the modern big agency is you have a timesheet that you need to fill in for your 40 hours and if you can't justify your time, then it's hard to justify having the person on staff. So it's, it's, it's a little bit of a catch-22. What about the idea of the creative team? where it's been since uh, Bernbach invented it 50-odd years ago. Um, we've got the copywriter and the art director. Um, and we've got the words, we've got the pictures, but there, it, digital adds this level of interaction as well. Um, how is your creative department structured, and do you see that there's a, a, a better way of working for agencies? Yeah, when I first uh, took over as the creative director of our uh, little group, which is known as Dialogue at JWT, back in the uh, kind of like mid to late 90s, the first thing I did was I broke up all the creative teams. Uh, not because I don't believe in collaboration and teams. You're going to have to apologise. Uh, actually, I might just turn that email off and it will stop that interruption, so just bear with me a second. Um, uh, yeah, so I broke up those creative teams, not because I don't believe in that sort of stuff. But I do. I believe in it 110%. But I like the idea of people being able to mix and match and putting people together for a particular job. So the idea of putting two art directors on a piece of work, uh, to me, is nice because it means that you don't get that writerly approach of trying to crack a headline, you develop an idea, or vice versa. Um, and I've always worked like that. When I went to London... Um, I suddenly found myself in my first job as a creative group head staring across the table at an art director uh, living in a hallway with a group of people uh, sitting in rooms. I don't like that and that's not my way of working. I very much like having a department of people who come together uh, for particular projects. Having come from a traditional side of working as well as the digital side, um, is there a different way of judging interactive work as there is from judging print work? Mm, interesting question, you know, because I think if we talk about the print work first, I think that there's a skill set required to do that that a lot of the people in today's industry don't actually get or appreciate, which is having an idea is one thing, but having an idea, you know, where you can kind of get the, where it's finally crafted and working is, a, is, is very much an old traditional craft, you know, where you craft and you craft and you polish. Whereas a lot of the ideas that are, come from the digital side, you know, and remember I'm working in, in both of these now, the, the digital ones is almost, here's an idea. Uh, and then once you've got your idea, you can kind of toss that up in the air and then other people can contribute to it and actually possibly change it into a whole new idea uh, so it becomes a lot more collaborative so I guess the difference in the two is that they both require collaboration to be created but then once they are you tend to kind of 
hive off to polish and, and finesse and craft in the, in the more traditional sense. And, in the, and with the digital ideas, you almost open it up to other thinking to try and make it better. Is there anything that you've got that, uh, that would be a, a, a sort of bee in your bonnet that I should ask you a question about? My little bee in the bonnet is that I still see, and it's quite obvious, I, I still see the division in our industry, you know, and I don't like it. And it's not so much a division of digital and non-digital, because to me everything's digital today. And as I said, is that once you have kind of children and as they kind of move into their teenage years, you start to get younger rather than older because you can see how things are changing. But the, there is one particular thing that I don't like, and that's the divisions between the business. And those divisions seem to be digital people who think that they're superior to so-called traditional agencies and people who work in agencies that are anything but traditional but are branded with that name by people who work in digital. So, they, they you know, like I, I think that we're all in the ideas business and the sooner that we can kind of find a way to put our focus on ideas rather than each one trying to be better than the other, the better the industry will be. Stanley, thank you very much indeed. No problem at all. As you can hear, Stan's a busy man plagued with meeting requests and emails galore, so big thanks to him for finding the time to speak to me. Next up, we've got Ed Robinson, creative director and founder of The Viral Factory. I'm sure you'll know lots of their work already, and you've probably passed it on to your friends. They picked up lots of awards last year for their Diesel Safe for Work XXX film, and their work has racked up over a billion views since they started. Best of all, their office is just five minutes walk from my flat. So last week I rolled out of bed and went in to see Ed for an early morning coffee and also to stick a microphone in his face. And this is what he had to say. So tip number one, make something relevant. So that's pretty self-explanatory really. You need to create something that the audience wants and not you. We, we in the marketing profession have most built our, our lives and our livelihoods on satisfying our clients and communicating what they want to communicate to the audience. Often we forget what the audience is actually really interested. Are they really interested that your sausage has a, a new type of skin that is 5% thinner or something. Most of the time, not really. They really aren't very interested in our corporate lives. They're too busy living their own, which are complicated and interesting enough. And we have to, to really have a moment of, of consideration. Is this thing that we're going to make, is our message relevant to them in their everyday lives? Is it something that actually has a benefit for them rather than us it's the first thing that most people get wrong in viral marketing they think just because I make an, an ad that's slightly more interesting than the rest of my ads it suddenly becomes interesting to the rest of the world for me it's like the, the emperor's new clothes it takes a kid to stand up occasion and say why would anyone find this interesting apart from us in the room because we're getting paid for it my number two tip is make it honest 
we are operating in a world which is about conversations and it's about instant research. I've heard someone recently say, why do we need libraries anymore? The internet has all the information you could ever want about absolutely anything. So I think that it's like us going into the greatest university ever and making a false claim. If you do that, then there's a million professors out there who'll turn around and, and tear you a new arsehole. And quite rightly so. So I, I think the, um, the, the key thing about your communications, partly for you, I think integrity for brands is absolutely key. But I also think if you're making any kind of any kind of product benefit statement, it has to be heartfelt, true, um, coherent to your story. Um, if it's not, then you can do much more harm than good by being viral. There are there are myriad cases of people who have made content that's gone viral and done them terrible harm by not basically being honest to themselves or to the audience or with the facts and then suddenly the counterfact is what becomes famous not what you're trying to tell them my third tip and it might sound a bit wishy-washy but it's it's make make it with love i think i have to i have to say that most people in this industry have an element of kind of cynicism about what they do. I think there are a lot of a lot of professionals, especially in the production side of the industry, who, how can I say, they, they seem to be reluctantly making the commercial pieces when they really want to be out there making making art. And there's, a, there's an element of sort of sadness about what they make. And I actually think it's an incredibly privileged position that we get paid a decent amount of money, have decent budgets to create stuff which can be genuinely intriguing and engaging. But it means that you have to make it with that kind of that kind of integrity. Like we often like in ourselves the sort of Hollywood producers or um, pop music purveyors and those are two fairly good analogies because we're not trying to make high art but we're trying to make popular art with some sort of integrity and knows what it is and it tries to, to, to um, hit those, those, those buttons it tries to satisfy an audience in some way but in order to do that you have to make it with, with love you have to really worry at something you have to, to, to caress it and not just for, for the client and again this is, a, this is a key thing the client isn't your, your audience your client isn't your, the person you need to satisfy often we have, a, we have a moment where we show something to a client and the client goes this is great we love this and then we go away and we, we come back and say you know what it's not good enough it has to be better because it's not about making you happy, it's about making the world happy and often the wet's a, bit my, a, a bigger task. And the only way you can do that is to make it with integrity and question yourself the whole time and make something with love. This sound, does sound terribly wishy-washy but it's entirely true. The love you put into the actual production and caressing of, of an idea and a concept and the delivery of it comes through and that, that's what the world warms to um, with, with music or with film or with art or whatever. It needs to feel heartfelt and like you really care, not like you're just being paid to do it. And if you do that, and it's actually pretty rare in this industry, think about the work that's out there, then your audience will feel it and they will respect you for it and they will enjoy it. My tip number four would be to seed it wisely. Seeding is sounds like a dark art and lots of people in the industry have a kind of vague understanding of what it is um, but it is it's increasingly key to get the seeding phase of content distribution right 
And it's extremely delicate. And I'll, I'll touch on a little bit why it is delicate. It's not just a matter of getting it in a lot of places on the internet, getting it in a lot of people's faces, because sometimes the harder you push, the more people will resist. If something is instantly classified and feels like an, an advertising piece of communication, a message being thrust in people's faces, then they're less willing to take it themselves and become advocates for it, genuinely get behind it. Obviously, you'll find ways that you can spend money online and, and get it in people's faces. But I'd like to consider the difference between you go to the front page of YouTube, I don't know how often you go to the front page of YouTube, certainly it's not as often as you used to probably, but if you do go to the front page of YouTube, which, which spots are you more interested in? The the, the lists on the left, which are the, the top, your top recommends and your, your, the top rated and the, the, the most viewed currently, those, those little clips which are real or the, that box in the top right hand corner which has got a, an ad in it which is beckoning you to, to come and play it. You have a very different relationship to the two. One is like the ad break and being ad people we might want to have a look at what other people are making ads but you'll be amazed how few people actually actually click those videos because it, that that's the place where the ads are and the rest of it is the place where the genuine content is and that distinction in people's minds is key and that happens all over the web this is an ad and this is a bit of content you will hardly ever find an ad that started off in the kind of placed ad spaces go viral because people understand that it's an ad which has got someone pushing it behind it and they don't want to be on your side. <laughs> We've got to remember that. The audience doesn't want to be on our side. They don't like us ad people probably entirely correctly, especially on the internet. So you need to, to, to be able to get it out there but do it in a way which is, which is sympathetic and doesn't feel like you're pushing it too hard. And the way you should really do that and the way we do that in our, in our company is by building honest relationships with um, content distributors, with bloggists, with bloggists, with, um, with highly popular Twitterers and Facebook um, people. And then you start a conversation with them, you find out what they like, and when you've got something that's genuinely relevant to, to, to what the kind of things that they like to talk about in their, their own environment, then you can deliver, deliver them that piece. In that way, they become proper advocates for it, and those are the people at the top of the pyramid who will then share it with everybody else. And because the rest of the, the internet is getting it from those people with integrity, who are starting it off in the chain with integrity, then it's got much more of a chance to go and to become viral. Um, seeding won't cure all your, your problems, and I think it's absolutely key that seeding it and content creation, the things I've just talked about, go hand in hand because I think people now think because you can seed and you can get views by just paying some money then we can relax about the things that I just talked about making it relevant, making it honest and making it with love they, you can make any old old school advertising stuff and you can get views certainly you can get views and you, you, someone will bring you a seeding report and say look it's been seen by a million people every single one of those I would say, or a vast majority will resent you for it because you'll have bought a pre-roll or you'll be, you know, pop-up banner or, or you'll be doing something which irritates their online experience rather than enhancing it. And I think that's where, if you're trying to create brand value, you need to do something which enhances someone's online experience, makes them enjoy the web and finds it a more useful place or a more interesting place. And that that feeling they get is then transferred to your brand. Simple as that, really. Make it, make it good and make it better. Don't push it in people's faces. So seeding is, you need it to get a piece of content going. 
but it's not the answer to everything. But if you do it, do it sympathetically, not with big advertising man's size 11 boots charging into the internet and going, everyone shut up, I've got some money, here's the thing, watch this everyone. And that's just, it just pisses people off, so stop doing it. My, my fifth one is really, is really to counter the rest, is be brave. Because the, the kind of, even the point of a kind of top five tips for doing something which is viral is sort of an anathema. It, it goes against actually what you need to do because being viral is about reinventing something. Because as soon as you've done something once, the internet isn't so interested. It's, um, it's got to be very new, it's got to be exciting. The internet picks up on trends, memes, ideas, thoughts, techniques anything which feels very current and different and then they'll talk about it as soon as it's been done it's it's very hard to go back there because it's not so interesting the internet is voracious has a voracious appetite for exciting new thoughts or styles or looks it's it's desperate for it. and as soon as it finds it then it gets it gets spread so the idea that you can have a sort of professional type list, a checklist, which is you can just follow every time and you'll make something as viral, is entirely wrong. At the end of it, you need to do something which is different and hasn't been done before, something which, which you've just got a, a kind of gut feeling. And that goes against our you know, natural desire to be professional and be absolutely sure and know what we're doing. But I also think that's the death of creativity once you've got a checklist, because you could have a robot or a computer running these processes rather than the person with a sort of gut instinct. Um, so at the end of the day, you have to be able to be brave and you have to be able to convince your clients to be brave because you're probably going to be doing something that you're a little bit uncertain. And if you're not a little bit uncertain, it means you're being too safe, which probably means you're not going to be viral. It's a, it's a horrible um, yeah, circle of, of uncertainty, but it also inspire you, should inspire you to be, to be better and to be more interesting and to have more fun with it rather than us coming to work and just peddling out the same stuff we were doing five years ago. Especially with the internet, the internet moves so fast, you need to do something different and that means you need to be brave and you will get it wrong. If you're not getting it wrong, you're not doing it right. You will not have a proper viral hit. Be brave. it for this slightly stripped down podcast. So what do you think? Taking too much stuff out? Are you missing something? Anything you want me to add back in? Give me your feedback at podcast at getadditive.com. I always like to hear from people and I do try and answer them. So go on. Next episode we've got an interview with Piers Fox who's one of the founders of psfk.com. In fact he's the P and the F of PSFK. And if that site's not in your bookmarks already, it certainly should be. And we'll also have another advertising review from my 11-year-old daughter. Until then, stay safe, be nice to people, and go and do a digital dare.